30, and some years before by the French General Moreau, hero of Hohenlinden, as the proper strategic position for safeguarding New Orleans on the south. Even after he had been pardoned, Lafitte felt, not without some justice, that he had been ill-used by the Americans, and because of this he determined to leave the country. He set sail with a band of his followers for other climes, but what became of them is not known. Some think their ship went down in a storm which crossed the Gulf soon after their departure, others believe that they reached Yucatan, and that Lafitte died there. Whatever his fate, he did not improve it by departing from New Orleans, for had he not done so he would, at the end, have been given a handsome burial and a nice monument like that of Dominique which may be seen to this day in the old cemetery on Claiborne Avenue, between Niberville and St. Louis Streets, having disposed of literary men and pirates. We now come in logical sequence to composers and actors, be it known, then, that E. H. Southern first raised, in the house at 79 Bienville Street, the voice which has charmed us in the theater, and that Louis Gauchock, composer of the almost too well-known, Last Hope, was also born in New Orleans. The records of the opera and the theater might, in themselves, make a chapter, as early as 1791 a French theatrical company played in New Orleans using halls, and in 1808 a theater was built in St. Philip Street. It is said that the first play given in the city in English was performed December 24, 1817, the play being The Honeymoon, and the manager Noah M. Ludlow, but it was not until some years later that the English drama became a feature of the city's life. With the establishment of a stock company under the management of James H. Caldwell, Edwin Forrest appeared, in 1824 with Mr. Caldwell's company at the Camp Street Theater, which he built on leaving the Orleans Theater. The former was, when opened, out in the swamp, and people had to walk to it from Canal Street on a narrow path of planks. It was the first building in the city to be lighted by gas. The annals of the old St. Charles Theater, called Old Drury, are rich with history. Practically all our great players from 1835 until long after the Civil War, appeared in this theater and in old prompter's book which, I believe, is still in existence, records, among many other things, certain details of the appearance there, in 1852, of Junie's Brutus Booth, father of Edwin Booth, and mentions also that Joseph Jefferson Sr. then a young man, was reprimanded for being noisy in his dressing room, New Orleans was, I believe, the first American city regularly to support Grand Opera and to give it a home for a great many years before 1859 in which year the present French Opera House on Bourbon Street was built there was a regular annual season of opera at the Orléans Theatre, long since destroyed. In the days of the city's operatic grandeur great singers used to visit New Orléans before visiting New York, as witness, for example, the debut at the French Opera House of Adlina Patti, since the time of the Civil War. However, the city has suffered a decline in this department of art. Opera seasons have not been regular, and in spite of occasional attempts to revive the old-time spirit, the ancient opera house, with its brave column front, its cracking veneer of stucco, and its surrounding of little varicolored one-story cafes and shops which are themselves like pits of operatic scenery, does not so much suggest to the imagination a home of modern opera, as a mournful mortuary chapel haunted by the ghosts of old half-forgotten composers, Harold, Spontini, Michel. Varney, old conductors, long since gone to dust, Prevost, John, Calabresi, old arias of Meyerbeer, Ober, and Donizetti, and above all, by the ghosts of pretty pirouetting ballerinas, 
and of great singers whose voices have, these many years, been still. An old lady who knew Louisiana in the 40s and 50s, has left record of the fact that plantation Negroes used to know and sing the French operatic airs, just as the Italian peasants of today know and sing the music of Puccini and Leon Cavallo. But if opera no longer reaches the Negro, it cannot be said that it has failed to leave its stamp on the French quarter. From open windows and doors, from little shops and half-hidden courtyards, from shuttered second-story galleries, there comes floating to the ears of the wayfarer the sound of music. In one house a piano is being played with dash, in another a child is practicing her scales, from still another comes a soprano voice, the sad whistling of a flute, the tinkle of a guitar, or the anguished squeal of a tortured violin. Never except in Naples have I heard, on one block, so many musical instruments independently at work, as in some single blocks of the view car, and never anywhere have I seen a sign which struck as more expressive of the industries of a locality, than that one which I saw near the house of men, Lollery, which read, on jobs done, and music, the reason for this musical congestion is twofold, not only is the Creole a great lover of good light music, but the whole region for blocks about the opera house is populated by old musicians from the opera's orchestra, and women, some middle-aged, some old, who used to be in the ballet or the chorus, and who not only keep alive the musical tradition of the district, but pass it on to the younger generation. Indeed there are almost as many places in the French Quarter where music may be heard, as where stories are told. In one street may be seen a house where the troubles with the Mafia began. On a corner the southeast corner of Royal and St. Peter is shown the house in which Cables, Sir George, resided. This house is, I believe, the same one which, when erected, caused people to move away from its immediate neighborhood, for fear that its height would cause it to fall down. It is a four-story house the first built in the city. At the southeast corner of Royal and Hospital Street stands that haunted house of men, Lalori, who fled the town when indignation was aroused because of devilish tortures she inflicted on her slaves. This house is now an Italian tenement, but even in its decay it will be recognized as a mansion which, in its day, was fit to house such guests as Louis Philippe, Raffiette, and Northeasty, a guest even more distinguished than these, was to have been housed in the mansion at the northeast corner of St. Louis and Chart Streets, for the Creoles had a plan to rescue Napoleon from St. Helena and bring him here, and had this house prepared to receive him, and are we to forget where Andrew Jackson was entertained before and after the Battle of New Orleans where General Beauregard, military idol of the Creoles, resided where Paul Morphy the Cheskin lived where General Butler took up his quarters when, in 1862, under the guns of Farragut's fleet, the city surrendered. Shall we fail to visit the curious old tenements and stables surrounding the barnyard which once was the remise of the old Orléans Hotel? Shall we neglect old Metairie Cemetery, with its graves built above ground in the days when drainage was less perfect? Shall we fail to go to the levee pronounced, levee, and see the savage flood of the muddy Mississippi coursing toward the gulf behind the embankment which alone saves the city from inundation? Shall we ignore the French market with its clean stalls piled with fresh vegetables, seafood, and all manner of comestibles, including file for the glorious Creole gumbo? Shall we not view the picturesque and sinister old absinthe house, dating from 1799? with its court and stairway so full of mysterious suggestion, and its misty paragoric flavored beverage, containing opalescent dreams, shall we not go to Sazerac for a cocktail, or to Ramos for one of those delectable gin fizzes suggesting an Olympian soda fountain drink, 
Are we to ignore all these wonders of the city? Yes, for it is time to go to a luncheon at Antoine's. Chapter LIX Antoine's and Marty Gra's Antoine's is to be one of the four or five most satisfactory restaurants in the United States, two of the others being the Louisiana and Gillette Wars. But one has one's slight preferences in these things, and just as I had a feeling that the cuisine of the Hotel Street Regis in New York surpasses, just a little bit, that of any other eating place in the city, I had a feeling about Antoine's in New Orleans. This is not, perhaps, with me, altogether a culinary matter. For whereas I remember delightful meals at the Louisiana and Guillotoir's meals which, indeed, could hardly be surpassed I lived for a week at Antoine's, and felt at home there, and became peculiarly attached to the quaint, rambling old restaurant, upstairs and down, Antoine's has never been, fixed up, the cafe makes one think of such old Parisian restaurants as the Buffalo Mode, or the Tour d'Urgent, far from being a showy place, it is utterly simple in its decorations and equipment. But if there is in this country a restaurant more French than Antoine's, I do not know where that restaurant island Antoine Alciator, founder of the establishment, departed nearly 40 years ago to the realms to which great chefs are ultimately taken. Coming from France as a young man he established himself in a small cafe opposite the slave market, where he proceeded to cook and let his cooking speak for him. His dindolo tellerin soon made him famous, and he prospered, moving before long to the present building. His sons, Jules and Fernand, were sent to Paris to learn at headquarters the best traditions of the haute cuisine, doing service as apprentices in such establishments as the Maison d'Ear and Brabant's. Jules is now proprietor of Antoine's, while Fernand is master of the Louisiane. The two brothers are of somewhat different type. Fernand Island above all. A chef, I had never seen him outside his own kitchen. His son, Fernand Jr. superintends the front part of the Louisiane which he has transformed into a place having the appearance of a New York restaurant. The young man has made a successful bid for the fashionable patronage of New Orleans, and there is dancing in the Louisiana in the evening. Jules, upon the other hand, is perhaps more the director than his brother Fernand more the suave delightful host. Bless the man of cap and apron. Jules loves to give parties to astonish his guests with a brilliant dinner and with his unrivaled grace as Garrett. That he is able to do these things no one is better aware than my companion and I for it was our good fortune to be accepted by Jules as friends and fellow artists. Never while my companion and I lived at Antoine's did we escape the feeling that we were not in the United States, but in some foreign land. To go to his rooms he went upstairs, around a corner, down a few steps, past a pantry, and a back stairway by which savory smells ascended from the kitchen. Along a latticed gallery overlooking a courtyard like that of some inn in Segovia, along another gallery running at right angles to the first and overlooking the same court, including the kitchen door and the laundry, and finally to a chamber with French doors, a canopied bed, and French windows opening upon a balcony that overlooked the side street. His room was called the Creole Yacht, while mine was the Maison Vert. I remember a room in that curious little hotel opposite the Café du Dome. In Paris the hotel in which it is said Whistler stayed when he was a student, which almost exactly resembled my room at Antoine's, even to the dust which was under the bed until Jeannie got to a work with broom and brush. Moreover, connected with my room there was a bath which actually had a chauffeur to heat the water, one of those weird French machines resembling the engine of a steam launch, which pops savagely when you light the gas beneath it, and which, as you are always expecting it to blow up and destroy you converts the morning ablutions from a perfunctory duty into a great adventure. Then too, 
There was Marie who has attended to the Linga at Aunt Juan's for the last fifty years, and who helped the gray-haired genial Eugenie to make proper the rooms, ever since Jeanie as she is called, for short came from her native midi. She has been at Aunt Juan's, and like Francois the general, kindly, white-mustached old waiter who, when we were there, had just moved up to Antoine's after 35 years service at the Louisiana Genie is always ready with a smile, yes, even in the rush of Mardi Gras, Antoine's does not set up to be a regular hotel, and we stopped there because, during the carnival, all rooms in the large modern hotels across Canal Street were taken, the carnival rush made room service at Antoine's a little slow, now and then, sometimes the bell would not be answered when we rang for breakfast, or again, our morning coffee and croissants would be 40 minutes on the way, sometimes we became a little bit impatient though we could never bring ourselves to say so to such amiable servitors, as a result, when we were leaving the city for a little trip, we determined to stay, on our return, at the Grunewald, a hotel like any one of a hundred others in the United States marble lobbies, gold ceilings, rot skellers, cabaret shows, dancing, and page boys wandering through the corridors and dining rooms, calling in nasal, sing-song voices, Mr. Schostad, Mr. Umkaplops, Mr. Pragolfus, Mr. Blums. We did return and go to the Grunewald, but comfortable as we were made there, we had to own to each other that we missed Antoine's, we missed our curious old rooms, I even missed my chauffeur, and was bored at the commonplace matutinal performance of turning on hot water without preliminary experiments in marine engineering. We thought wistfully of Jeannie's patient smile, and of her daily assurance to us, when we went out, that when she had made the apartments she would render the key to the bureau, Ailers, which is to say, leave the key at the office. We yearn for the café, for good Francois for the deliciously flavored oysters cooked on the half-shell and served on a pan of hot rock salt which kept them warm, for the cold tomatoes a la Jules César, for the bisque of crayfish a la Cardinal, for the bouillabaisse which Thackeray admitted was as good, in New Orleans as in Marseille, and which Otis Skinner says is better, for the unrivaled gumbo a la Creole, and pompano and papillot, and pressed duck a la tour d'urgent, and orange brillo and the wonderful Café Brillo Diabolic that spiced coffee made in a silver bowl from which emerged the blue flames of burning cognac, and in honor of which the lights of the café are always temporarily dimmed, nor least of all was it that we wished to see again the mother of Jules, who sits back of the case and takes in the money, like many another good French wife and mother a tiny little old lady more than 95 years old, who came to New Orleans in 1840 as the bride of the then young Antoine Alciator. So we put on our hats and coats when evening came, and went back to Antoine's for dinner, and as long as we were in New Orleans we kept on going back, that is not to say, of course, that we did not go also to the Louisiana and Gillette Wars, or that we did not drop in for luncheon, sometimes, at Brasco's, in Gravier Street, or at Cold's, a more or less conventional German restaurant in St. Charles Street, or that we failed to go out to Trinquinas at Spanish Fort on Lake Pontchartrain, or to the quainter little place called Nois where, we learned, Ernest Pixado had been but a short time before, gathering material for indigestion and an article in, Scribner's Magazine, but when all is said and done there remain the three restaurants of the old quarter, I should like to give some history of Gullet Wars as well as of the other two, but when I asked the patron for the story of his restaurant, he smiled, and with a shrug replied, but monsieur, the story is in the food, 
Do not expect any of these places to present the brilliant appearance of distinguished New York restaurants. They are comparatively simple, all of them, and are engaged not with soft carpets and gilt ceilings, but with the art of cookery. I have been told that some of them have what may be termed tourist cooking, which is not their best, but if you know good food, and let them know you know it, and if you visit them at any time except during the carnival, then you had a right to expect in any one of these establishments, a superb dinner, for as I once heard my friend call, Beverly Miles, one of the city's most distinguished gourmets, remark, to talk of tolerably good food in a French restaurant is like talking of a tolerably honest man. The carnival of Mardi Gras and the several days preceding, is one of those things about which I feel as I do concerning Niagara Falls, and gambling houses, and the red light district of Butte, Montana, and the underground levels of a mine, and the world as seen from an aeroplane, and the Quatres Arts Ball, and a bullfight I am glad to have seen it once, but I had no desire to see it again. During the carnival my companion and I enjoyed a period of sleepless gaiety, to be sure. We went to bed every morning, but what is the use in doing that if you also get up every morning? We went to the street pageants. We went to the balls at the French Opera House. We saw the masking on the streets, and when the carnival was finished we were finished, too. The great thing about the carnival, it seems to me, is that it bears the relation to the life of the city, that a well-developed hobby does to the life of an individual. It keeps the city young. It keeps it from becoming pompous from taking itself too seriously, from getting into a rut, it stimulates not alone the young, but the grave and reverend seniors also, to give themselves up for a little while each year to play, and moreover to use their imaginations in annually devising new pageants and costumes, from this point of view such a carnival would be a good thing for any city, but that is where the Latin spirit of New Orleans comes in with its pleasing combination of deity and restraint, you could not hold such a carnival in every city, you could not do it in New York, far more important even than the pageants and the balls, is the carnival frame of mind, to hold a carnival such as New Orleans holds, a city must know how to be lively and playful without becoming drunk, without breaking barroom mirrors, upsetting tables, annoying women, thrusting ticklers into people's faces, jostling, fighting, committing the thousand rough vulgar excesses in which New York indulges every New Year's Eve and in which it would indulge to an even more disgusting extent under the additional license of the mask, the Carnival Carn Veil, Farewell Flush which terminates with Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, or Shrove Tuesday, the day before the beginning of Lent comes down to us from pagan times by way of the Latin countries, the Cowbillions, a secret organization of Mobile, in 1831 elaborated the idea of historical and legendary processions, and as early as 1837 New Orleans held grotesque street parades, 20 years later the Mystic Crew, now known as Comus, appeared from nowhere and disappeared again. The success of Comus encouraged the formation of other secret societies, each having its own parade and ball, and in 1872, Rex, King of the Carnival, entered his royal capital of New Orleans in honor of the visit of the Grand Duke Alexis who, by the way, is one of countless notables who have feasted at Antoine's, the three leading carnival societies, Comus, Monus, and Proteus, are understood to be connected with three of the city's four leading clubs, all of which stand within easy range of one another on the uptown side of Canal Street, the Boston Club taking its name from an old card game, the picket named for Dickens' genial gentleman, a statue of whom stands in the lobby, the Louisiana, the Young Men's Club, and the Chess. 
Checkers and Whist Club. The latter association is, I believe, the one that takes no part in the carnival. Each of the carnival organizations has its own king and queen, and the connection between certain clubs and certain carnival societies may be guessed from the fact that the Comus Queen and Proteus Queen always appear on the stand in front of the picket club, to witness their respective parades, and that the queen of the entire carnival appears with her maids of honor on the stand before the Boston Club upon the day of Mardi Gras, to witness the triumphal entry and parade of Rex. As Rex passes the club he sends her a bouquet the official indication of her queenship. That night she appears for the first time in the glory of her royal robes at the Rex Ball, which is held in a large hall, and the great event of the carnival, from a social standpoint, is the official visit, on the same night, of Rex and his queen, attended by their court, to the king and queen of Comus, at the Comus Ball, held in the Opera House, passing between the brilliantly illuminated flag-draped buildings, under festoons of colored electric lights, the street parades, with their spectacular colored floats, their bands, their negro torch bearers, their strangely costumed masked figures, throwing favors into the dense crowds, are glorious sights for children ranging anywhere from 8 to 80 years of age. Public masking on the streets, on the day of Mardi Gras, is also an amusing feature of the carnival. The balls, upon the other hand, are social events of great importance in the city and as spectacles they are peculiarly fine. Invitations to these balls are greatly coveted, and the visitor to the city who would attend them, must exert his pull some time in advance. The invitations, by the way, are not sent by individuals, but by the separate organizations, and even those young ladies who are so fortunate as to have call-outs, cards enclosed with their invitations, indicating that they are to be asked to dance and may therefore have seats on the ground floor are not supposed to know from what man these cards come. Ladies who have not received call-outs, and gentlemen who are not members of the societies, are packed into the boxes and seats above the parquet floor, and do not go upon the dancing floor until very late in the evening. Throughout each ball the members of the society giving the ball continue to wear their costumes and their masks, so that ladies, called from their seats to dance, often find themselves treading a measure with some gallant who speaks in a strange assumed voice, striving to maintain the mystery of his identity. The ladies, upon the other hand, are not in costume and are not masked, about them. There is no more mystery than women always have about them. After each dance the masker produces a present for his partner usually a pretty bit of jewelry. Etiquette not only allows, but insists, that a woman accept any gift offered to her at a carnival ball and it is said that by this means many a young gentleman has succeeded in bestowing upon the lady of his heart a piece of jewelry the value of which would make acceptance of the gift impossible under other than carnival conditions. After the balls many of the younger couples go to the Louisiana and Antoine's, to continue the dance, and as my room at Antoine's was directly over one of the dancing rooms of the establishment, I might make a shrewd guess as to how long they stayed up. After my companion and I retired, let it not be supposed that we retired early. I remember well the look of the pale blue dawn of Ash Wednesday morning, and no less do I remember a conversation with a gentleman I met at the Louisiana, just before the dawn broke. I never saw him before and I have never seen him since, nor do I know his name, or where he came from. I only know that he was an agreeable, friendly person who did not wish to go to bed. When I said that I was going home he protested, Don't do that, he urged. There's a nice French restaurant in this town. I can't think of the name of it. Let's go there. Well, how can we go if you don't know what place it is? 
I asked, intending to be discouraging. The young man looked dazed at this. Then his face brightened suddenly. Oh, yes, he cried. I remember the name now. It's the Louisiana. Come on, let's get our coats and go there. But, I said, this is the Louisiana right here. The thought seemed to stagger him, for he swayed ever so slightly. All right, he said, regarding me with great solemnity. Let's go there. I have wondered since if the same young man may not have been the one who, returning to the St. Charles Hotel in the early hours of that sad Ash Wednesday morning, was asked by the clerk, who gave him his key, whether he wished to leave a call. What day is this? He inquired. Wednesday, said the clerk. All right, replied the other, moving toward the elevator. Call me Saturday. Chapter Alex Finale Yonder the long horizon lies, and there by night and day the old ships draw to home again. The young ships sail away, and come I may, but go I must, and if men ask you why, you may put the blame on the stars and the sun and the white road and the sky. Gerald Gould, it is good to look about the world, but always there comes a time when the restless creature, man, having yielded to the call of the seas and the stars and the sky, and gone a-journeying, begins to think of home again, even were home a less satisfactory. A less happy place than an island he would be bound to think of it after so long a journey as that upon which my companion and I had spent so many months. For, just as it is necessary for a locomotive to go every so often for an overhauling, so it is necessary for the traveler to return to headquarters. The fastenings of his wardrobe trunk are getting loose, and the side of it has been stubborn, his heels are running down and back, his watch needs regulating, his umbrella handle is coming loose. He is running out of notebooks and pencils and has broken a blade of his knife in trying to open a bottle with it because he left his corkscrew in a hotel somewhere along the way. His fountain pen has sprung a leak and spoiled a waistcoat. His razors are dull. His strop is nicked. And he has run out of the kind of cigarettes and cigars he likes. One lens of his spectacles has gotten scratched. His mail has ceased to reach him. His light suits are spotted, baggy and worn and his winter suits are becoming too heavy for comfort as the spring advances. His neckties are getting stringy. He has hangnails and a cough. He never could fix his own hangnails, and he cannot cure his cough because the bottle of glycerin and wild cherry provided for just such an emergency by the loved ones at home, got broken on the trip from Jacksonville to Montgomery, and went dribbling down through the trunk, ruining his reference books, three of his best shirts and the only decent pair of russet shoes he had left. The other shoes have been ruined in various ways, one pair was spoiled in a possum hunt at Clinton, North Carolina and it was worth it, and worth the overcoat that was ruined at the same time, two pairs of black shoes have been caked up with layers and layers of sticky blacking, and one pair of russets was ruined by a well-intentioned Negro lad in Memphis, who thought they would look better painted red. His traveler's checks are running low and he is continually afraid that, Amid his constantly increasing piles of notes and papers, he will lose the three books in each of which remains a few feet of yellow script, the mileage of the South which will take him on his return journey as far as Washington. Nor is that all. The determining factor in his decision to go home lies in the havoc wrought by a long succession of hotel laundries laundries which starch the bosoms of soft silk shirts, which mark the owner's name in ink upon the hems of sheer linen handkerchiefs which already have embroidered monograms which rip holes in those handkerchiefs and then fold them so that the holes are concealed until, some night, he whips one confidently from the pocket of his dress suit, and reveals it looking like a tattered battle flag, 
laundries which leave long trails of iron rust on shirt bosoms, which rip out seams, tear off buttons, squeeze out new standing collars to a saw to edge, iron little pieces of red and brown string into collars, cuffs, and especially into the bosoms of dress shirts, and finish dress shirts and collars, not only in the sense of ending their days of fullness as fast as possible, but also by making them shine like the interiors of glazed porcelain bathtubs. But the greatest cruelty of the hotel laundry is to socks. It is not that they do more damage to socks than to other garments, but that the laundry devil has been able to think of a greater variety of means for the destruction of socks than for the destruction of any other kind of garment. He begins by fastening to each sock a cloth-covered tin tag, attached by means of prongs. On this tag he puts certain marks which will mean nothing to the next laundry. The next laundry therefore attaches other tin tags, either ripping off the old ones leaving holes where the prongs went through or else letting them remain in place, so that, after a while, the whole top of the sock is covered with tin, making it an extraordinarily uncomfortable thing to wear, and a strange thing to look at. There is still another way in which the laundry devil tortures the sock owner. He can find ways to shrink any sock that is not made of solid heavy silk, and of course he can rip silk socks all to pieces. He will take silk and wool socks of normal length, and in one washing will so reduce them that you can hardly get your foot into them, and that the upper margins of them come only about an inch above your shoe tops. People who had no business to do so, are thus enabled, when you are seated, to see the tops of your socks and to amuse themselves by counting the tin tags with which they are adorned. Also, the socks, being so short, become better pullers than the garters, so that instead of the garters holding the socks up, the socks pull the garters down. This usually occurs as you are walking up the aisle in church, or in the middle of a dance, and of course your garter manages to come unclasped, into the bargain, and goes trailing after you, like a convict's ball and chain. For a time you can stand this sort of thing, but presently you begin to pine for the delicate wash to bar the of Amanda, at home, for vestments which, when sent to the wash, do not come back riddled with holes, or smelling as though they had been washed in carbolic acid, or in the tub with a large fish. So, presently, you fold up your rags like the Arabs, fasten your battered baggage shut as best you can, put it on a taxi, and head for the railway station. No train ever looks so hand, 